Welcome to this episode number 15 on Nicodemus the Pharisee, which is really part two of a two-part series, the first of which appeared as episode number 14, Nicodemus the One Who Came by Night. In our last episode, we tried to figure out all we could about Nicodemus solely through the Gospel of John, and we found several things from the Gospel account. We found out that Nicodemus first sought to meet Jesus because he and his colleagues, knew that Jesus was a teacher come from God, that he had seen Jesus perform certain signs, that he was perplexed by Jesus' words about how to have eternal life, that he didn't deny what Jesus told him, but he didn't embrace what Jesus told him either. Nicodemus feared his colleagues might know he was attracted to Jesus, but, as John says, he loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. We also saw that he was a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which gave him high social standing among the people and supreme legal authority as well. But we also saw that he was willing to risk that standing in a bold move with very carefully chosen words to challenge his fellow Pharisees when they sent officers to arrest Jesus at the feast of Sukkot. The confrontation showed many things including the Pharisees' probable suspicion that Nicodemus was a secret follower of Jesus. But it also showed their own deference to the rule of law, which allowed Nicodemus to succeed in preventing Jesus' arrest for the time being. Then finally, we see him at the scene of the burial, and possibly at the crucifixion itself, where he would have seen Jesus lifted up like the bronze serpent in the desert with Moses, just as Jesus foretold him he would see. You and I never saw that. Lots of other people never saw it either. But Nicodemus did. He saw it. And I'm sure he never, ever forgot it. And he cooperated with Joseph of Arimathea in a most spontaneous and generous burial, where he gave him a burial fit for a king out of pure love. And he did this in daylight, not at night where all could see his allegiance. But the one thing we haven't talked about yet, and it will take us some time to do so, is his identification as a Pharisee. A designation may come striking to many of us to the extent we're accustomed to thinking of Pharisees universally as bad, evil people. And some most certainly were bad, evil people, as we shall see. But not all were bad, evil people, and we've seen that too, when we see that Nicodemus was not the only Pharisee to be attracted to Jesus. Many of his peers were attracted to Jesus too, and we know from the quarrel over circumcision that many of his peers, if not then, certainly later, became Christians after Jesus' resurrection. I want to dive now into the world of the Pharisees, to the extent we can, so we can understand more about Nicodemus and what was going through his mind from the time he first encountered Jesus until the time he provided for his burial. But before we do that, let's take a look at some general historical evidence about him, or at least what we think we can know about him, from some non-scriptural historical sources. This flesh-and-blood fellow we've been talking about, Nicodemus, is known directly only through the Gospel of John. And like I said in our last episode, I'm not going to entertain any theories that he was some fictional character made up to make Jesus look good. 
Jesus doesn't need our help in making himself look good. But what I do find interesting is how ancient historical sources might intersect with and corroborate actual gospel figures. For this, I'm going to turn now to Professor Richard Bauckham, English, Anglican scholar in theology, historical theology, and New Testament studies at Ridley Hall, Cambridge University. Professor Bauckham is the one you may recall we turn to in unpacking who were the women at the cross. He's enormously good and respected in taking bits and pieces of facts and piecing them together with other facts to present us with a plausible picture of who someone was. He's like someone who takes a few stray clusters of puzzle pieces and puts together a large thousand-piece puzzle out of them. Or he can take a Picasso and reorder it to be a Rembrandt. Well, sort of. And he's done that here with Nicodemus. There's a 1996 article he published in the Journal of Theological Studies through Oxford University Press, in which he draws a very plausible connection between Nicodemus and another personage who is mentioned in the works of Josephus and in early rabbinic texts, Nakdemon Ben-Gurion. You see, Nakdemon and Nicodemus are one and the same name, but in different languages. Nakdemon is the Hebrew variant of Nicodemus, which is a Greek name, which is what John used because he wrote his gospel in Greek. So when we hear the name Nakdemon, as we will in various rabbinic writings, it'll be the same name attributed to our guy in the Gospel of John. Not the same guy, but the same name. So I'll tell you in advance, this Nakdemon we will be talking about is not the same Nicodemus we have been talking about. But as Professor Bauckham shows us, these two guys were related to each other. They were from the same family. Of course, the family didn't have a name as such because surnames weren't used back then. People were known by their fathers, which is why this Nakdemon was known by his father, Gurion, and that will be the key to linking him to Nicodemus. So we'll turn then to this Nakdemon Ben-Gurion, whose full name means Nakdemon, son of Gurion. That's what the Ben means after one's name. Son of is the designation but in Hebrew. Bar was the Aramaic equivalent, Simon Bar-Jonah, as Jesus called Peter in Matthew 16. It meant that Peter was known as Simon, son of Jonah. Bartimaeus meant son of Timaeus. The question then is, who is this Nakdemon, son of Gurion? Because his name comes up in the historical record as someone who lived around the siege and fall of Jerusalem between 67 and 70 AD. Here's what we know about him. The historical record in this case is what is known as rabbinic literature. Rabbinic literature arose sometime around the year 200 AD and consisted of various Jewish writings on religious laws that were collected and studied. The writings include a variety of accounts by and about leading rabbis or sages on the oral and written Torah, going back well before the fall of Jerusalem. The writings are not necessarily all regarded as historical accounts, even by the rabbis themselves, but some do purport to be actual histories too. The problem is that some of them sound like, and may well be, mere folklore, and others do not sound like folklore and sound like actual histories handed down by tradition instead. It's not easy to separate between the fact and the fiction. 
But it didn't matter to them because, even like folklore, the stories contain important teachings and moral lessons, in which case we may or may not care whether a description really happened or not. But again, like scripture, when something appears to be an historical account, we should accept it as an historical account, and we can apply that same standard to the rabbinical writings here. And with Nechdemon, we get a mixture of both. The rabbinic writings attest that during the siege and fall of Jerusalem, there were three wealthy men who were revered for their wealth and generosity, Nachdemon, Ben-Gurion being one of them. One writing says that there were four such men, but it too expressly identifies Nachdemon as being one of them. These men were so wealthy, says one source, that together they were in a position to supply food for all of Jerusalem for 21 years. One writing calls these men great figures of the realm. Indeed, this knock demon was regarded not only as a great man of wealth and patronage, but also as a great man of faith. There's a story about him in one of the writings regarding some pilgrimage to Jerusalem where there was no water available for drinking. So Nachdemon went to a pagan lord and asked him for 12 wells of water on a promise to restore all the water by a certain day, or alternatively, he would pay him 12 talents of silver instead. The lord agreed, and the pilgrims had water. But a drought then set in, and on the appointed day of payment, the lord demanded that Nachdemon make payment as promised. The lord sent messages in the morning, at noon, and in the afternoon, and each time Nachdemon responded, saying there was still time remaining in the day for him to make good on his promise since the wells of water had not been restored. Late that day, the Lord sneered at him, saying, No rain has fallen all year, and you think it'll rain now? And he went into his baths. Nachdemon then went into the temple, depressed. He wrapped himself in a cloak, and he stood to pray, saying, Master of the universe, it is revealed and known before you that I have not done this for my honor, nor for the honor of my father's house, but for your honor have I done this, in order that water be available for the pilgrims. Immediately, clouds formed and dumped so much rain that it filled all twelve wells with water and then some. The Lord came out of the baths and saw this, but he said, in effect, sorry, but the wells were not refilled before the end of the day, which they all understood to mean sunset. So you still owe me. Nachdemon went back into the temple and prayed, Master of the universe, make it known that you have beloved ones in the world. Immediately the clouds dispersed and the sun broke through. The Lord then relented, but with a snarky response. If the clouds wouldn't have opened, I would have had my exact claim for money against you. In rabbinic tradition, the sun broke through for only three men in history, Moses, Joshua, and Nachdemon. There's another account about him which says he was so wealthy that when he walked from his house to his house of study, woolen clothes were spread beneath his feet, and the poor followed behind him and rolled them up and took them away. We're instructed to know that this was really an act of generosity because he was using the opportunity to give away nice clothes to the poor. Indeed, this scene should conjure up a familiar image to you. Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? It was not just palms that covered the ground in front of him. 
Matthew 21 tells us that most of the crowds spread their garments on the road. Quite a sight. Quite a custom. I guess it was the equivalent of, will you sign my t-shirt? Here it was, uh, will you walk on it, please? Nick Demon's daughter also comes up in the rabbinic literature in a couple places, and those references shed light on the kind of wealth she once had before the fall of Jerusalem. One writing describes her as having been seen picking barley out of horse dung, or worse, out of the hooves of Arab cattle. The account was regarded as a reminder of what God would do to the wealthy when the people of Israel abandoned him. Another account has the daughter cursing the sages for only giving her 400 gold coins for her perfume basket. Well, this may sound like a lot, and it was comparatively, but it was also a pittance comparatively to the vast wealth she previously had. She said to them in a tone of a curse, may you grant such allowances to your own daughters. And the sages answered, Amen. Again, the story is told to remind people about the vast wealth she once had and later lost. Wealth that Nick Demon once had too. So we are led to know that this Nick Demon, son of Gorion, was at one time enormously rich. And back then, riches followed households, meaning he was born into that wealth. Nick Demon's father, Gorion, therefore, was enormously rich. And here's where the connection with our Nicodemus Titans. Professor Bauckham notes that the name Nicodemus was not commonly known among Jews. Nicodemus is a Greek name and it means conqueror of the people. Josephus mentions the name only twice. The core of that name in Hebrew is Naki, which could have been an abbreviation for Nicanor, Nicholas, Nicetas, Nicomachus, or Nicomedes. There's a different rabbinic reference to a Naki who was a scribe who lived in Magdala, but apart from that, the name appears nowhere else in antiquity for any Palestinian Jew. So it's striking that the name comes up in both Greek and Hebrew, because it rarely comes up in either. But then there's the name Gurion that accompanies this Nakdemon in these rabbinic writings. The name Gurion appears in Josephus only once, and in rabbinic literature, only with reference to individuals, three rabbis and a father of a rabbi, who lived a long time later in the second to the fourth centuries. But apart from them, again, nowhere else. What makes these two names, Nicodemon and Gurion, when appearing together for the same person, is the likely identification of all other family members who bear these same names. Wealthy, aristocratic families like to keep their names in the family, but not generally from father to son. You don't find Jacob ben Jacob or Jacob bar Jacob in the record because that would be too confusing. On the other hand, generational skipping was common. Josephus, our Jewish historian, was a good example of that. He was known as Josephus ben Matthias, meaning Joseph, son of Matthias. And his grandfather had the same name. So going backward, you had Josephus, his father Matthias, his grandfather also Josephus, and his great-grandfather also Matthias. So, in the case of Nicodemon Bargurian, we have two names from antiquity 
both of whom are identified as being one of the leading wealthy families in Jerusalem. We have a Nakdemon Ben-Gurion, that is Nicodemus, son of Gurion, and we also have a Gorion, son of Nicomedes. This latter, this Gorion fellow, comes up not in the rabbinic writings, but in the writings of Josephus. Josephus recounts that Gorion was one of three prominent representatives who went to the Roman garrison in 66 AD to accept the surrender of the commander there. Jewish rebels had besieged the prison in Herod's palace, and they sent Gorion, son of Nicomedes, as one of those to market official, as they were prominent, rich Jews whom the Romans were accustomed to find cooperating with in peaceful time. So, we see Gorion, son of Nicomedes, and Nicdemon, son of Gorion, likely linked together as from the same wealthy aristocratic family in Jerusalem. Again, generational name-skipping is the key. Do we know anything about the name Gorion or Gurion? Possibly. It may have been chosen for military significance, because that name is derived from the word for lion's cub. The name was associated with the royal house of Judah and the hope of the Messiah of David. It also conveyed an image of military prowess and victory, as in the lion's whelp devours its prey, and in the song praising Judas Maccabeus for his military victories. I'm sure many of you are itching to point out the familiarity of that name Gurion in modern history. Calm down. Yes, if the name Gurion or Ben-Gurion sounds familiar to you, that's because it's the patronym of the primary national founder of the state of Israel and the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, who was prominent in public life before and after the founding of Israel in 1948 and until his retirement from public life in 1970. The main airport near Tel Aviv is named after him. I don't know of his ancestral history and whether he is descended from the Gorian family in first century Jerusalem. By common account, I don't think he cared. He was not a religious man until very late in life, when two years before his death, at the age of 87, in 1963, he professed a deep conviction in God. But the coincidence of his name and how it signified his role in history is nothing if at least interesting. He was a lion, by name and deed. Now, when we take these facts and compare them against what we know about Nicodemus from the gospel, we see them line up. John tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. The Greek makes his power explicit. As we saw in the last episode, he was an archon, meaning a ruler, a commander, a chief, or a leader. Josephus used this same word to refer to the powerful men or the distinguished men which included the chief priests and the leading citizens. Since there's no indication that Nicodemus was a chief priest, or even a priest, that meant he was among the leading citizens, and leading citizens were among the very wealthiest families in Jerusalem. For much of the time in our own country, you could go to a city like New York or Boston and know exactly who the wealthiest families were. It would probably have been easier in first century Jerusalem. Wealth and families, as we said, had staying power. And so the wealthy Nakdemon Ben-Gurion, who alone could have fed Jerusalem for several years, and Gorion, son of Nicomedes, who accepted the surrender of the Roman garrison in 66 AD, were both of the same family and were both directly related to Nicodemus. If you track Professor Bauckham's genealogy, he'll show you with pretty plausible connections that 
Our Nicodemus of the Gospel of John was the uncle of Nakdemon ben Gurion and the father of Gurion. So this generational account, Gurion, Nicodemus, Gurion, along with another generational account, Gurion, Joseph, Gurion, are striking and give us assurance about Nicodemus's own aristocratic family connection. Now, John also describes Nicodemus as a Pharisee. Most Pharisees were not among the wealthy class, but a few were, which meant that Nicodemus was among the relatively small number of wealthy aristocratic Pharisees who belonged to the ruling elite. That's why John can refer to the ruling group as the chief priests and the Pharisees, ignoring other members of the lay nobility. Josephus, too, makes the same kind of reference, lumping the chief priests and the Pharisees into a common grouping. Now, according to rabbinic literature, Gamaliel and his son Simeon also belong to this group of aristocratic Pharisees. The Gurian family, says Bacham, is probably the only other known family which can confidently be assigned to it. So, in short, Bacham concludes that this Nakdemon ben Gurian was Nicodemus's nephew, and that Nicodemus was Nakdemon ben Gurian's uncle. Did Nicodemus live to suffer through the siege of Jerusalem? We don't know. His encounter with Jesus was in about 30 AD, which was 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem. If he was himself 30 then, he would be 70 at the time of the fall. If he was 40 years old, then 80 at the time of the fall. It seems more likely the latter, or even later, as privileges tend to come with age, and it seems difficult to imagine a 30-year-old as a ruler of the Jews back then. On the other hand, Pontius Pilate was about that age, so who knows? So perhaps Nicodemus, by way of age, was spared the tragedy of suffering through the fall of Jerusalem, where blood was, as the ancient historians said, ankle deep in the streets. But his nephew and his grandniece were not so spared, if not by the sword, then at least by destitution. But the wealth of the Nicodemus Gurian family was certainly put to good use, and that family was remembered in Jewish history fondly for it. We should not be surprised then that a large and great streak of magnanimous generosity ran in Nicodemus's bloodline. Let's then get into our long-delayed discussion of the Pharisees. And I want to give you some important backdrop for it. Bear with me. As with any of the lectures in this podcast series, I try to immerse myself into all the scholarship and theology I can find on the matter. And I went about to do that here. In the series on the trial of Jesus, I went to a variety of sources to consider the background of the Pharisees. And I tried to summarize those sources as best I could. But when coming at the topic anew, here with Nicodemus, I wanted to return to sources and dive a whole lot deeper because I wanted to know things like, what did Nicodemus study? How was he trained? What did he teach? What were the controversies of his day, especially in response to the denunciations his fellow Pharisees got from the lips of our Lord? So I came across a book, a collection of scholarly papers, actually, that purports to canvas the most current state of scholarship on the Pharisees. And it's called simply The Pharisees. And it consists of 25 academic treatises that arose from a 2019 conference in Rome sponsored by the Pontifical Biblical Institute. The Institute is a research and postgraduate teaching institution 
that specializes in biblical and ancient Near Eastern studies. The Holy See founded the Institute in 1909 and handed it to the Jesuits who have run it since then. Many of the papers in the 440-page book are by professors at the Institute, as well as by professors from leading universities around the world. Pope Francis, himself a Jesuit, gave an address to this conference, and his address is included in the book. I have never been more excited to get a book, and never more disappointed after reading it, in all my life. The book is edited by Father Joseph Sievers, Professor Emeritus of Jewish History and Literature at the Institute, and Amy Jill Levine, University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and the Department of Jewish Studies. Professor Sievers is an ordained Jesuit priest. Professor Amy Jill Levine professes to be an Orthodox Jew. If I could sum up the entire volume in a few words, I think it would be this. We know almost nothing about the Pharisees, so shut up and stop talking about them, because when you do, all it leads to is violence and anti-Semitism. Now, this is my summary, not theirs, of course. And there are certainly nuggets of great information and analysis in it. But I felt a bit like Nick Demon's daughter picking out edible barley from horse dung. Please, someone who's also read it, correct me if they think that's unfair. Allow me to quote directly from the volume's co-editor, Amy Jill Levine. Quote, Despite historical and exegetical advances, preaching and teaching throughout the Christian world continue to depict Pharisees as xenophobic, self-righteous, elitist, legalistic, money-loving, judgmental, unseen hypocrites. Quote, Because Pharisee has, to the present day, been generally understood to refer to all Jews, anti-Pharisee characterizations consequently extended Jews across the centuries and throughout the globe. Quote, this coalescence of combining all Jews as Pharisees begins with the New Testament. Matthew elides distinctions between Pharisees and Sadducees and eventually lumps the Jews together, first as all the people who call for Jesus' crucifixion, and then strategically as the Jews who claim the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Quote, the Gospel of John offers an unrelenting condemnation of the Jews and divides the cosmos between those who follow Jesus and the Jews who do not because they are children of the devil and cannot follow Jesus. Quote, anti-Jewish tropes that developed substantially after the biblical period, also find anchor in the Gospels, especially in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, where the Pharisees are described as lovers of money. Quote, Christianity's judgment of the Pharisees formulated over the centuries with the negative connotations that Phariseeism has assumed in theological thought and in ecclesial catechesis is the child of an anti-Jewish theology. It is more, she says, quoting a co-author. It is the child of anti-Jewish stereotypes writ large. Now, what makes her position so terribly aggravating is that she and other authors in the book insist that we cannot possibly take gospel texts about the Pharisees at face value, in particular the Woe statements Jesus hurled at the Pharisees standing before him. 
She and other authors strain to argue that whoever it was who wrote the gospel called Matthew put these words in Jesus' mouth, and they did so after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when they had an axe to grind in the heads of their opponents. One author, in particular, and I'm not even going to mention her name except to point out that she's the Buckingham Professor Emerita of New Testament Criticism and Interpretation at the Yale University Divinity School. And she opines that Jesus' denunciations of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 were, quote, most likely composed by Matthew. But she considers the remote possibility that Jesus himself actually spoke these words. That's no matter, then, she says, because the problem is with Jesus himself, since he was part human after all, and he failed to live up to his own standards he set in his Sermon on the Mount. Quote, being human means being influenced by your culture and not always living up to a high standard, she says. And I'm quoting her. So Jesus said some horribly nasty things to some Pharisees because, well, he just couldn't control himself. Now, Father Seavers, who should know better, cites her chapter approvingly and notes that many of the passages in the New Testament, principally those in Matthew and John, bear the, quote, imprint of a stereotype, which he says is, Massive, polemical, and if generalized and taken by itself is totally unjustifiable. Get that? Many passages in Matthew and John contain stereotypes that are totally unjustifiable if taken generally and alone. This word stereotype comes up over and over and over again, like self-righteous junior high kids trying to halt a prejudice that mean mean kids have against a friend. Pope Francis himself uses this term three times in his relatively brief address. I don't like that word, and I didn't like it in junior high either, because it came into vogue in the 20th century to describe a social group's perceived characteristics. So anytime someone claims there are perceived characteristics, then someone gets to deny those characteristics apply to them and to make a counter-accusation that the characterization is false and prejudicial. It's a stereotype, and you must refrain from using it. And then it's game over. You need to just shut up. Father Sievers, along with his co-author, Massimo Grilli, a professor emeritus at the Pontifical Gregorian University, echoes all of these complaints. And he says, with the kind of definitive conclusion that only a long-tenured university professor can dare to make, quote, For Christian scholars, it is no longer possible to speak of the Pharisees on the sole basis of select gospel texts, nor is it possible to rely uncritically on the scholarship of the past. Now, these two pref professors are, shall we say, stereotypical of other professors who have immersed themselves perhaps a little too deep in the world of the historical critical method, and who have set themselves up as the high priests of Holy Scripture, you, is what they are lecturing us, you have no basis for interpreting Scripture without consulting us first, because we are the only ones who know what those terms mean through our careful study of ancient texts. And by the way, you need to consult us about every 20 years or so because our opinions change. And yes, we feel very bad for everyone over the last 2,000 years who has missed out on our scholarship and has been reading the New Testament wrongly and in complete and profound ignorance. But that's okay. 
because we are now mastering it, and we will be the light of the world for ages of readers to come. Just read us, and then stand by for more as things develop. Okay, so maybe it's unfair of me to attribute this kind of nasty pride and arrogance to any one of these individuals' positions. It may well be that these Jesuit priests and divinity professors have drawn these conclusions based on what they perceive to be their own humble scholastic pursuit. But it doesn't change the conclusion they have in fact reached, that it is only now, through modern historical research methods, that we can understand the texts of Holy Scripture. We've been reading these texts wrongly all of these years since they were written. This is their solemn conclusion, no matter how humbly they profess it, which is usually not professed very humbly, but more like a stone thrown at your face. I just don't buy it. I have two huge problems with all of what these scholars are saying. First, I don't think it's fair for them to say that for 2,000 years, Christians and the vast throng of church fathers, saints, holy men, holy women, priests, monks, sisters, abbots, popes, cardinals, bishops, lay people, scholars and non-scholars alike, have been reading scripture wrongly. And this is what exactly Seavers and Grilly actually say. Quote, In Christian tradition, judgment of the Pharisees over our 2,000-year history has been based mostly on an uncritical understanding of the gospel texts. Christian tradition, for a 2,000-year history, has been reading the gospel texts about the Pharisees uncritically and wrongly? Really? So the Holy Spirit has just been standing by, waiting all this time for the academies to staff themselves with just the right professors in the 20th century so that the people of God could finally be enlightened? Whether this conclusion is the product of humble scholarship or not, it still bears all the marks of chutzpah. Second, unless and until these or any scholars can prove that words of the gospel that look to be historical but are not historical as they say they are not, then they are the ones who should hold their tongues. It doesn't work to present arguments from a priori assumptions, as they most certainly do, that gospel passages, especially those about the Pharisees, are necessarily not historical. Really, how the hell do they know? And I can throw in just one last personal observation here. The one I mentioned in our last episode about how we really shouldn't be surprised about negative things being said about any group or organization that's been around for a really long time, because that's just how history works in all times and all cultures. So when Matthew says this about the Pharisees, quote, they do all their deeds to be seen by men. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces and being called rabbi, rabbi by men. Do we really think this is all that horribly offensive, shocking, prejudicial, stereotypical, mean and nasty, a thing to be said about them, and not about every other similar group throughout all of human history? I mean... Come on. And let's not forget what Jesus said at the outset of this passage. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. Do what they say, not what they do. Their teachings are good. Their actions are not good. What's so terribly offensive about that? Now, I realize we're getting 
way beyond the scope of our study here. But I have to offer these strong counter-criticisms because contrary to these esteemed pontifical biblical scholars, I think we should consider and are even right to assume that each of the New Testament passages we'll be looking at include words that Jesus himself, in fact, spoke. There's a wonderful document every scriptural scholar should return to over and over again. It's a 1964 document from none other than the Pontifical Biblical Commission itself, promulgated at the directive of Pope Paul VI, with a title that says it all, Instruction Concerning the Historical Truth of the Gospels. The document is a terrific summary of general principles to guide scholars in approaching Holy Scripture, and it's beyond our scope to cover them all. But one thing scholars must never forget is this, says the instruction, that, quote, Christ the Lord chose a select group of disciples who saw his works and heard his words and were in a good position to be witnesses to his life and teaching, and who realized that the miracles and other events of Christ's life took place so that men might believe in Christ and embrace his message of salvation by faith. So let me be crystal clear about all of this. I'm not advocating any literalist approach to scripture I'm not defending fundamentalism, and I'm not dismissing the many benefits we can obtain through the historical critical method of reading scripture. I am far, far from it. But I will not accept some categorical in-your-face command, as some of the authors in this volume have so decreed, that I'm barred from considering whether actual words attributed to Jesus in the Gospels are words he actually spoke. And I will add it's deeply and profoundly offensive for them to accuse me of being anti-Semitic for believing that he did so. I would much rather stand with the millions and millions and millions of Christians who over the past 2,000 years have rightly supposed Jesus said mean and nasty things to certain Pharisees. That's the way the texts read on their face, and thus we're entitled to read them that way. And if someone says we can't read the text that way, then they have the burden of proof. And just because they can present arguments in favor of their position doesn't mean they've proven their case. They're just giving us an alternate theory to consider. What they cannot do is plant their flag, declare victory, and then silence 2,000 years of reading scripture the way it has been read. It doesn't, it hasn't, and it never will work that way. Now, having cleared my throat, and staked out what I think are my grounds for proceeding here to talk about the Pharisees, I'll meet Amy Jill Levine halfway in this. We simply cannot, and we must not, read what is said about the Jews in the New Testament, including the words Jesus said about the Jews, to apply to Jews at any other time in history, and most especially to Jews now. She says this, and I would totally and heartily agree. Quote, Many Christians today are unaware of how some of their co-religionists in earlier times preached against Jews, tortured them, exiled them, and killed them. They tend, she says, only to hear the stories of how nuns or clerics sheltered Jews during the Shoah. They will not know of the majority who did nothing to prevent the atrocities or actively participated in them. To this, I say emphatically, Amen. And as you may have heard me say in an earlier episode, I think every man, woman, and mature child on earth should watch the full nine and a half hour documentary by French 
filmmaker Claude Lonsman called Shoah. It'll be a profound reminder of what Professor Levine said. And that's just for starters. I will also trust her in her observation that many people throughout history have construed Jesus's denunciation of Jews badly and wrongly, and have used those denunciations to do absolutely horrible things to Jews over history. Absolutely horrible things. With what megaphone can I use to deplore this along with her? Please, hand it to me now. And because of that, I think she's right to caution Christians as often as possible, as I aim to do here, to never, ever, ever apply these denunciations to any Jew at any time. She's absolutely right. When any Christian does this anywhere, at any time, to any Jew, only very bad and very unchristian things will happen. And also, I want you to know that my passion in agreeing with her, and why you should agree with her too, has nothing to do with some modern notion about how and why we should all just get along and be nice. It has to do with theology, and it's real simple from this perspective. God chose the Jewish people as his very own. He blessed them in a way he blessed no other nation on earth. And when God gives a blessing like that, it remains forever and ever. And we Christians need to respect that blessing and accept the mystery that comes with it. One of the great documents of the Second Vatican Council, Nostra Aetate, in 1965, says exactly this, although even better and more profoundly. You really need to go read it. It's not very long, and it's very, very good and clear, and I'm not going to read it here. I read part of it in my very first episode on the sources of the trial of Jesus. In 1987, Pope John Paul II expanded on these points and referred to the Jewish people as our elder brothers in the faith of Abraham. Our elder brothers in the faith of Abraham. I really like that description. It shows we have the same father, and are really and truly related through faith. We may not know how that works out, but I don't care. As long as I can think, from a starting point, that I am related to Jews by faith, I take deep inspiration from that, very deep inspiration from that. And so I love the Jewish faith, the Jewish people, and their history. And when they suffer for their faith, we should suffer with them. We must prevent that suffering from occurring. Remember, the devil attacks the Jews because he knows he's attacking God, and he uses any agents he can to serve that purpose, even at times Catholics, which is why I think it's fair that we know about and apologize for, as Pope John Paul II has apologized for, whatever suffering we, that is we Catholics, have inflicted on Jews throughout history. They are our brothers and sisters. They are specially chosen by God. And we should never forget this. We worship a Jew. I've never been so encouraged as I have been in modern times to see good relations between Catholics and Jews. This may well be the best time in history for those relations. And this is another point on which I think the authors of the book on the Pharisees actually get right. Professor Levine believes that the Roman Catholic Church has been, as she says, the most productive and the most helpful in improving Jewish-Christian relations and in eliminating the teaching of contempt. And she cites this Vatican II document, Nostra Aetate, as one good example. She also cites the Holy See's Commission for Religious Relations with the Jews, as well as a work by the United States Catholic Conference called God's Mercy Endures Forever, 
guidelines on the presentation of Jews and Judaism in Catholic preaching. They are all terrific documents, and I heartily commend them to you for your reading. So, now that I've mapped out my agreements and disagreements with many of the authors in this volume, permit me to now venture into this very intriguing study of Pharisees, which, remember, we're undertaking to allow us some understanding of how our friend Nicodemus may have seen the world. I apologize for the length of my interlude here, but I hope you can see why it's necessary that we do so as we venture into this very touchy topic. One threshold issue on which all scholars seem agreed is that we really know less about the Pharisees than we thought we did. And there are several explanations for that. One reason is that for much of history, people looked at the name Pharisee, and in particular, its Hebrew root, first, which means set apart or separated. People then made assumptions about what Pharisees were set apart from. As it turns out, we really have no firm idea about what they were set apart from. Craig E. Morrison, professor of Aramaic and Syriac at the Pontifical Biblical Institute, shows how this is reflected in scholarship over the last hundred years and how the trajectory of research began with, as he says, a certainty about the etymological meaning and its application, to uncertainty about its meaning, to ignoring the etymological approach altogether. So it won't help us anymore to draw any conclusions about Pharisees by looking to the etymology of the name itself. We just don't know what they considered themselves set apart from. A second reason why we know less about Pharisees today than we thought we did in times past is that many beliefs or practices that were assumed to be unique to Pharisees were actually not unique to them, but were accepted and practiced by Jews generally. So it doesn't work for people to say, as many have, for instance, that the Pharisees were particularly focused on ritual purity laws. All Jews of the period accepted ritual purity laws, and so we don't have a point of distinction between Pharisees and others sufficient to allow us to say anything distinctive about Pharisees, even though the point comes up in the Gospel accounts. A third reason why we know less about Pharisees today is that it was commonly assumed that the rabbinical writings we talked about earlier were writings reflecting Pharisee thinking. But scholars in recent years have shown that this is not so. The writings reflected a very different group of rabbis at the time who did not themselves identify as Pharisees, even if they may have tended to agree with Pharisaic teachings. So, while there are certainly rabbinical writings that say some things about Pharisees, and we can learn something from them, the vast majority of other rabbinical literature is not to be regarded as capturing the teachings and thinking of the Pharisees themselves. There are other reasons too, but perhaps the main handicap in being able to know much about what Pharisees actually thought is that we have zero writings from them describing what they thought. We don't have a single document written by a Pharisee other than the letters of Paul, and even he is unhelpful in telling us what Pharisees as a group believed. What are our sources, then, in knowing anything about the Pharisees? Well, there are four, and each of these sources, too, has its limitations. First, of course, there's the New Testament. It mentions the Pharisees close to 100 times, 
mostly in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles. And there are some things we can learn about them there. But we learn about those things through accusations cast against them, where, shall we say, we don't have the benefit of knowing how they would have responded. In fairness, we should need to give them due process too, as it were, even as God gave it to Adam in the Garden of Eden, as we mentioned in our last episode. Second, there's the Jewish historian Josephus. He says some things about the Pharisees, and people used to accept what he said uncritically. But when you look at what he says critically, as careful scholars have done, we can't accept all the things he says about them. Josephus is not Holy Scripture, after all. Third, there are the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in the caves of Qumran in the late 1940s. Now, those have some fascinating references to the Pharisees. But again, the references come by way of accusation without any response by Pharisees. Vasil Babota, who teaches in the Department of Biblical Theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University, that's a different pontifical university in Rome, but also under the governance of the Society of Jesus, he says that the origin of the Pharisees in history largely remains a mystery. He says that while the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, and rabbinic literature say that the Pharisees emerged in the Second Temple period between the 6th and early 1st centuries BC, we really don't know how and why they appeared in that period. We see settings for their emergence, he says, scribal activity and socio-political activity, but we don't know how they regarded themselves and why they emerged as they did. The Book of Maccabees, he notes, dates from the end of the 2nd century BC, purporting to cover a period from about 175 to 134 BC, and not once are the Pharisees mentioned in that book. Josephus mentions them as active during the Hasmonean dynasty in the 2nd century and early 1st century BC, when they fell out of favor with John Hyrcanus, and then back in favor with Salome Alexandra. But not even he is clear on how and where they originated before that. This mystery of any long-standing group's origins shouldn't be terribly surprising to us. Many groups around today bear no resemblance to the groups when founded. Think of the Democratic and Republican parties, for instance, if you can bear to think of them. And can you imagine what it would be like for scholars 500 years from now, trying to make sense of the origins of those great many clubs founded in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, with names like Elks and Moose and Oddfellows and Optimus? Especially if those future historians won't have much documentation to go on and have only their names, locations, and historical setting to look to. Good luck. Archaeology has tried to weigh in on the issue too, but also with uncertain information. Eric M. Myers, Professor Emeritus in Jewish Studies at Duke University, has found some potential connections. He says, quote, One of the most striking aspects of how Judaism appears in the material culture of the late Second Temple period, he says, is how it reflects the increasing prominence of purity concerns, a development common in Pharisaic circles, though we've been unable to identify and locate them only within a Pharisaic context. He points to a study by James E. Strange, who suggests that the Pharisees of that period may have left their mark in the archaeological record in five ways. 1. Table fellowship 
and small chalkstone vessels. Two, ritual immersion of dishes and large chalkstone vessels. Three, ritual baths. Four, ritual washing of the hands before eating with small chalkstone cups. Five, the flourishing of tombs and ossuaries. And six, synagogue activity, plans, and architecture. Chalkstone is a kind of stone vessel, and stone was used because it was non-porous and would clean easily. The vessels were impermeable to impurity. Evidence suggests there were large industries in Judea that produced stone vessels and ossuaries. Bowls were in big use at the time. You can imagine the commercial industry attached to it. And these kinds of domestic exchanges that must have happened all the time and that all you husbands and wives should recognize. Oh, look, honey, Zadox is having a sale on purification bowls. Bowls? We need more bowls? Oh, but they're so cute. And they're just like that set my cousin Miriam has. Ritual bathing is an archaeological given. More than 1,000 baths, or mikvahot, have been discovered throughout Judea and Galilee. And the use of ossuaries was common to all, rich and poor alike. Ossuaries were stone boxes in which you would put the bones of the dead after they had a chance to dry out. Families would be put in them, as Joseph Caiaphas's family was, and whose ossuary was discovered in 1990. Thus, it was not only the Pharisees who believed in life after death. Archaeology has also uncovered a number of phylacteries, which are small leather encasements containing small scrolls, often containing scripture texts. It's too difficult to say whether they were unique to Pharisees, but their use seemed consistent with their practices because they were found in the Qumran region where the Essenes lived. But despite these archaeological findings, we can't really ascribe any of them specifically to Pharisees because they seemed to have been in common use. Let's take a closer look, though, at these principal sources we've been talking about. We'll start with Josephus, we'll go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, we'll then look at rabbinic literature, and then finally, the Gospel accounts. And from that, we'll get a better picture of who our friend Nicodemus really was. Josephus has 30 volumes on the ancient Jewish world, and the Pharisees rarely appear there. Steve Mason explains, He's a professor of ancient Mediterranean religions and cultures at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Mason says that this ancient historian of the ancient world, Josephus, appears not to have believed that any of the schools of thought were relevant for understanding Judea. He only mentions them when he's making his narrative more intelligible, but he never offers any sympathetic explanation for their motives. As I mentioned, scholars used to accept Josephus' accounts as neutral, a kind of report on what happened. Scholars no longer think that, after having dived deep into his words. The main thing to keep in mind, they say, and this makes sense, is that Josephus was writing to impress his new Roman conquerors. It's worth noting here what Father John Meyer, the distinguished biblical scholar and the William K. Warren Professor of Theology Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame, has to say about Josephus. Father Meyer, as you may recall, is the one whom Pope Benedict XVI quotes favorably in his splendid three-part series on Jesus of Nazareth. Father Meyer just passed in late 2022 at the age of 80, 
and he has left us a masterful exegesis on the gospel text using the historical critical method in a series of volumes entitled A Marginal Jew Rethinking the Historical Jesus. You can see from that title, Rethinking the Historical Jesus, that his aim was to rescue poor Jesus from the so-called historical Jesus project that we've talked about previously and which seemed bent more on using history to deny the divinity of Jesus than in affirming it. Father Meyer is not in this book on the Pharisees, and that's a shame because he may have added some needed balance to it. But in volume three of Father Meyer's large work from 20 years ago, he says this, We may not naively approach Josephus as the one totally reliable source about the Pharisees on grounds that he himself was a Pharisee for the whole of his adult life. What we're dealing with is a Jerusalem aristocrat and anti-Pharisaic Hasmonean priest who found it convenient toward the end of his life to declare that he had been a Pharisee for all of his public career, when in fact he had not. So, details that tend to show why Rome was right to invade Jerusalem and why certain figures in Judea were the unnecessary causes of that invasion are going to be more prominent in Josephus's account. When Pharisees appear, he presents them as troublemakers to the people he admired. He mentions almost in passing that three schools of philosophy existed, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. He comments at length and favorably on the Essenes, notably their views on the soul and afterlife. His discussion of the other two is perfunctory. Pharisees, he says, ascribe everything to fate. They consider the soul imperishable with rewards and punishments awaiting after death, and they have a community in which members care for each other. Sadducees, however, deny the soul and fate, and treat even fellow Sadducees harshly. Now here's one long extended description Josephus has of the Pharisees, and it's worth hearing because it's often cited and it explains a little of what we know and a lot of what we don't know about them. He says this, quote, I want to explain here that the Pharisees passed on to the people certain ordinances from a succession of fathers, which are not written down in the laws of Moses. For this reason, the party of the Sadducees dismisses them, averring that one need recognize only the written ordinances, whereas those from the tradition of the fathers need not be observed. Conflicts and major differences develop between the two groups over these matters. The Sadducees find their followers only among the well-heeled, however, and have no popular following, where the Pharisees have the alliance of the rabble. That's it. That's about all Josephus says, at least at length. The alliance of the rabble. Get that? At one point, Josephus declares that he himself was once a Pharisee, and older historians took that at face value. But close examination of his account and the timeline that he offers, it just doesn't add up. And so scholars, as I said, don't put much stock in that claim or passage anymore. But Josephus does offer one gloss on the Pharisees that does seem corroborated through other sources, including the New Testament. He says they were popular among the people because of their lenient and precise legal traditions. And he says Jerusalem's jurisprudence followed Pharisaic principles, even when the Sadducees were the magistrates in charge. Finally, Josephus confirms what the Acts of the Apostles confirm. The Pharisees believed in life after death. The Sadducees did not believe in it, 
And that, you'll recall, is what allows Paul to escape from his own trial before the Sanhedrin. He says to provoke the Sadducees and to shore up support from the Pharisees, Look, the only reason you're persecuting me is because I believe in life after death. I absolutely love that scene. Paul is so wonderfully creative. You can so imagine it. Paul lights the fuse and he waits. All it takes is one even quiet remark from a Sadducee to set the powder keg on fire, because this is a dispute that's been brewing between them for a long time. Well, uh, you have no basis for thinking there's any life after death. Some Sadducee must have surely snorted. What? You said what? cried some Pharisees. You cling to childish beliefs, and you have no idea how the real world works. Remember, it was pretty much these same words that Joseph Caiaphas used against the Pharisees when they were collaborating on the ultimate arrest of Jesus. Quote, you know nothing at all, is exactly the words he said to them at the time. Here, someone may have wished to pick that fight again. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? Oh yeah? And suddenly yelling occurs, and people stand, and they point fingers at each other, and yell some more, and it probably sounded a lot like the English House of Commons, maybe louder. And Paul then slips quietly out the back door. You gotta love it. Let's look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Scholarship through the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, is extraordinarily impressive. They take bits and pieces of parchment and compare and contrast them with other ancient writings to form some intelligible document. You get a glimpse of that when you consider this title alone by one of the authors in this book on the Pharisees. Quote, Pharisaic Halakha as emerging from 4QMMT. Yes, that's the chapter title. We can unpack it, though. Halakha refers to the Jewish laws from the written and oral Torah. 4QMMT refers to manuscripts found in Cave 4 at Qumran. That's opposed to those found in Caves 3, 2, or 1, it seems. Now, this analysis is by Vered Noam professor in the Department of Jewish Philosophy and Talmud at Tel Aviv University. And I think he has probably the most interesting piece in the whole book. Professor Noam noticed several disputes the Essenes had with the Pharisees. And again, as he notes, we only get the Essene point of view, not the Pharisee defense. But what we get is way better than nothing and is in self-revealing. Let's talk about those disputes one by one. And there are four of them. There was a dispute over who got to eat the first fruits as directed in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. The passage says that when you plant any kind of fruit tree, the fruit is forbidden to be eaten for three years. In the fourth year, it'll be deemed to be, quote, holy and offering of praise to the Lord. Then in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, end quote. Those words about the fourth year, an offering of praise to the Lord, meant that the priestly class would be able to enjoy the fruits in that year because they received a portion of the offering to the Lord. In the fifth year, then, the fruit was available to everyone. Well, what about the owner of the fruit trees? Did the owner have to wait until the fifth year to enjoy his produce, or was he able to join in with the priest and enjoy it also? That seems like a fair question to litigate. 
The Pharisees said that the owner was able to eat it in the fourth year, and they cited to an early Canaanite and Israelite annual custom where the owners got to celebrate with the first wine of the season. Opponents of the Pharisees, however, insisted that the priests alone got to eat it, citing the literal words of the Torah. We're not sure who prevailed in this dispute. Probably the Pharisees, because their view would have been a popular view, at least among the Jewish Fruit Growers Association. But the dispute itself tells us something about the Pharisees. Not a whole lot, but their position on the, inter on the issue is interesting, because it shows they were not willing to stick to a literal reading of the Torah. They were arguing to preserve an ancient tradition. And that's consistent with what Josephus said when he said, the Pharisees had passed on to the people regulations handed down by former generations and not recorded in the Law of Moses. It suggests, as Professor Noam puts it, that Pharisaic law was a conservative system preserving ancient ancestral traditions and objecting to holochic innovations. Then there was another dispute that arose out of something we are familiar with in our day and age, the recognition of leap year. We have leap year when we add an extra day to the calendar at the end of February, so we can synchronize with what's going on our annual trip around the sun. Do this every four years. Well, the ancients had a controversy over this too. Should we mark our days by the sun or the moon? If we mark our days by the sun, we'll come up short, even though we like carving up the year into 52 weeks of seven-day weeks. But ancient Israel followed the lunar calendar, as God marked out for them in the Torah. That didn't exactly square things up with the heavens either, but it's certainly a reasonable calendar to live by. Writings from the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees and the Dead Sea Scrolls favored the sun year calendar, claiming it best reflected the seven days in which God created the earth. But the Pharisees clung to the lunar calendar, thus emphasizing the importance of ancient traditions. Of course, they each made up for the solar differential, but differently. Since then, Jews have followed a modified version of both the lunar and solar calendar, which is why they call it, surprise, surprise, a loony solar calendar. They had a 13th month every few years to make their own leap year. Clearly, no one right answer to this question. But again, the point is that this shows the Pharisees were emphasizing the primacy of an ancient tradition. So, you might be inclined to think now that the Pharisees are always clinging to ancient traditions. Not so fast. The scrolls mention a dispute over whether animals that were slaughtered outside Jerusalem could be brought into Jerusalem. The dispute is a bit complicated, and it's easier to see how the dispute arose than to describe the issue itself. As you might imagine, Jerusalem was a bustling city and had commerce of all kinds associated with it. It wouldn't take long before people started bringing their various goods into the city. Goods made from animal parts, chiefly hides, skins, hooves, bones, horns, whatever. And they'd make for nice wineskins, leather goods, and such. And maybe they'd even bring in a nice hunk of smoked meat to eat, too. This became a problem because of certain passages in the Torah. Leviticus, chapter 17 says you could only slaughter and eat animals, like an ox, a lamb, or a goat, if you had first presented them as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle. That assumed you'd be living somewhere near the tabernacle. But the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, 
offers an allowance for those who lived in towns away from the tabernacle. Israelites there could slaughter and eat the meat without having to first present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle. The meat would not be purified, but they could still eat it and make whatever products they wanted from it. Now, since Jerusalem included the site of the temple, which is where sacrificial offerings were to be made, what about all those non-sacrificial slaughterings that occurred outside Jerusalem? Yes, yes, you could enjoy them outside of Jerusalem, but could you bring them into Jerusalem? Josephus records that in the beginning of the second century BC, Antiochus III issued an edict in favor of the Jews where foreigners were advised that they could not bring into the city any animal forbidden to the Jews, nor any of their skins. Only sacrificial animals were permitted. So, the issue remained percolating for a couple hundred years, and the Essenes were bent on enforcing the rule. They said, no, the hide is the same as the flesh, and if the flesh is impure, then so is the hide. No hides. Apparently, the Pharisees said, give me a break. Of course we can bring hides into the city. Now, they raised various arguments in support, none of which the Essenes liked, but the Pharisees argued that the Levitical rule only applied when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, and they also appealed to tradition, noting that such things as hides, bones, sinews, horns, and hooves were not regarded as impure. People could make them into stuff and bring them into the city without violating any purity laws. Again, we're not sure who carried the day here, Probably the Pharisees, because they no doubt had the strong support from the Jerusalem Chamber of Commerce and the Hebrew Trade Merchants Association. You know I'm kidding, right? But again, what's interesting about the Pharisees' position is that they were making their argument from an older tradition and not from any literal or inflexible reading of the Torah. And moreover, they were advancing the cause of a more lenient position than their opponents were. Just as interesting, I think, is the fact that the Sadducees argued the opposite position. They thought that the bones, corpses, hides, or flesh, or nail were impure and could not enter the city if the animals had been slaughtered without. Go figure. Man, if you didn't believe in life after death, why would you make life so hard on yourself? On the other hand, I have to wonder if the Sadducees were pressing for some economic benefit here. After all, if all animals eaten or used in Jerusalem had to be brought to them first for a sacrificial offering, and they got a small fee for their efforts, of course, then it's not terribly surprising why they might have taken this position. I'm sure we can imagine some conflict between the Jerusalem Chamber of Commerce and the Temple Administration and Restoration Fund. Was Nicodemus involved in this conflict? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. He seems more likely to have belonged to the lead chapter in the Jerusalem Rotary Club. And what about a larger, more mystical point? If Jesus was the ultimate sacrificial offering, is there something potentially significant about the fact that he first presented himself to the temple area during Passion Week and was then sacrificed outside the city walls? Lots to chew on there, folks, literally and figuratively, if you catch my drift. 
Now, the last het controversy is the most interesting, and I think you'll see why. It's known as the Red Heifer Controversy, and it arises from the book of Numbers, chapter 19. And I'm going to read the full text here so you can appreciate the controversy and its significance all the better. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish, and that has never been under a yoke. Give it to Eleazar the priest. It is to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eleazar the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned, its hide, flesh, blood, and intestines. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool, and throw them onto the burning heifer. After that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be ceremonially unclean till evening. The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance both for the Israelites and for the foreigners residing among them. I know that for some of you this must sound dreadfully boring. Let me explain why it's not for me. You see, all of these rules, every one of them, are designed to bring people closer to God. God wants them to understand how pure he is. So he makes them go through these painstakingly detailed rules of purity so they can learn to see this. The more particular God is, the more they should come to see how particularly pure he is. All of this, of course, is to be a sign for us believers about absolutely spotless is God's son and why God wants us to be absolutely spotless too. So, yes, it's true on one level that all these details are really boring. On another level, they're really thrilling. So I think. I realize I'm not very convincing to many of you, so I'll go on. So on its face, this thrilling rule of purity applies to the one who gathers the cow's ashes and to the one who sprinkles the cow's ashes on a defiled person or object. What about the other participants in the process? What about the guy who slaughtered the cow or the guy who burns the cow? Must they be ritually pure too? Well, some said that, yes, the priestly system demanded utmost purity. The other side, the Pharisee side, said, no, purity satisfied by the two participants alone, the ash gatherer and the ash sprinkler. Now, the debate's complicated, but it's set forth in the scrolls, and scholars have been able to piece the arguments together. And the point they make, though, is that the Pharisee position is contrary to the earlier tradition that demanded absolute purity. 
So again, this tells us that we can't quite say that the Pharisees followed tradition blindly. They were certainly willing to break from it when they believed they could. Now, what Professor Noam doesn't talk about, and what some Christian scholars do talk about, although not in this book, is the significance of the red heifer itself. Jesus was the red heifer. He is the one who had to be sacrificed to make the people pure. Now, there's a lot to be said about this for sure, but that'd be beyond our scope here. But I like to think about this issue through the mind of Nicodemus. Had he been aware of this issue? He had to have taught about it. But when he was putting Jesus in the tomb at Golgotha, was he thinking about Jesus being the red heifer? And if not a heifer, was he thinking he was the pure and spotless sacrificial lamb of Passover? And if he was too hurried to think about all of this then, did he think of it later in a sober moment of reflection? Probably the most lasting reference to the Pharisees and the scrolls is an accusation the Essenes make against them as a class. They call them, quote, the seekers after smooth things. The seekers after smooth things. And they characterize them as a people who, quote, walk about in deceit and falsehood. Of course, this conflicts with the more complex portrait Josephus makes of them and with some of the controversies we just went through. Did they, quote, walk about deceit and falsehood? Well, certainly some did, as their very creator said they did when he was looking directly at them and at the interior of their souls. Did all of them walk about in deceit and falsehood? Well, I don't think anyone expects the Essenes to be offering any universal truth on that. It's a kind of thing every group says about every other group who's locked in pitched battle against the other on religious or political issues. We do that today. We shouldn't be surprised if sometime in the future some archaeologist finds yet another cave in the Qumran region with some scrap of papyrus written by a Pharisee accusing the Essenes of being a bunch of weenies. Would that change anything? I don't think so. But seekers after smooth things has more of a ring about softening religious laws that apply to people than the kind of stringent notion we may like to associate them with. Is this helpful to our understanding? Yes. Are these two notions necessarily inconsistent? No. But look, we're dealing with puzzle pieces and we're doing the best we can to make them fit. Maybe we'll get more puzzle pieces down the road. And anyone who disagrees is a weenie. Let's talk about the rabbinic literature and its take on Pharisees in first century Jerusalem. Professor Shay Cohen, the Lidauer Professor of Hebrew Literature and Philosophy at Harvard University, takes a dim view on whether we can know anything about the Pharisees through the Mishnah. The plural word for Pharisee appears only 10 times in it, and he concludes this. The framers of the Mishnah and their sources possessed only minimal Pharisaic self-consciousness if they possessed it at all. Now, there's a professor in the Talmud department at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Yair Furstenberg, and he seems a bit more open than that. He does consider early rabbinic literature as informative, although in limited respects. And he too notices how the Essenes accuse the Pharisees as being, quote, seekers of smooth things. And he finds that consistent with some references in the Mishnah where the Sadducees attack the Pharisees for being too lenient 
and for disregarding priestly principles on holiness and purity. On the other hand, the Pharisees may well have advocated stricter religious practices. In the Gospel accounts, he notes, the Pharisees attacked Jesus for not washing his hands. Jesus said in return, You leave the commandment of God and hold fast to the tradition of men. Now, this accusation accords with what Josephus said about them, that they had, quote, passed on to the people certain regulations handed down by former generations and not recorded in the laws of Moses. Professor Furstenberg notes a reference in the Mishnah on how the rabbis had excommunicated an Eleazar ben Enoch for refusing to recognize handwashing as a binding law. In other words, the rabbis very much insisted that handwashing was binding law, and they were willing to excommunicate someone who disagreed. So, the rabbis and the Pharisees were agreed on that principle. Another issue is divorce. This was a contested issue among Palestinian Jews. The Pharisees tested Jesus on the issue in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, to see which side of the issue he took. While Moses allowed divorce, Jesus rejected it. And so, by the way, did the Essenes. And Jesus' response suggested that the Pharisees stuck with Moses on the issue. According to a later rabbinical tradition, the Sadducees advocated a very little interpretation of an eye for an eye in administering justice. You poke someone's eye out, your eye gets poked out in return. On the other hand, the Pharisees said, well, payment of money in lieu of getting your eye poked out would be fine. Now, that is most definitely a more lenient view of the Torah, I think. Wouldn't you much rather pay legal damages for poking someone's eye out than in having your eye poked out as the penalty instead? And especially if your insurance wasn't going to cover you for it? Professor Furstenberg also points to a fascinating issue that probably has confused many of us in reading this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. It's in one of the woe passages that we'll talk about later. Jesus said this, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? What the heck is Jesus talking about here? Well, Professor Furstenberg says that Jesus is not castigating the Pharisees for making hair-splitting distinctions. He's castigating them for thinking that what is less holy, the gold, is more important than what is more holy, the temple. This would accord with the priestly complaints that the Pharisees were offering more lenient practices than they should be. Their view, apparently, was that sacrifices and gold could become sacred through human consecration, sufficient to create an obligation in the form of a vow rather than an oath. But Jesus exposed the paradox by showing that while the gold could be consecrated by humans, the temple could not be so consecrated. We also see something about Pharisee law in the dispute with Jesus over purification of cups. The Pharisees thought that one needed to clean only the exterior of a cup to purify it. And Jesus castigates them for taking this position as we'll see later on when we talk about the fifth woe Jesus hurls at them. In fact, a rabbinic source refers to an issue arising out of certain cases of vessels that were contaminated on the exterior. 
The Pharisees thought it was fine to cleanse the exterior only, whereas the priestly class believed the interior needed to be purified also, even though it had been purified before. So here again, the Pharisees were taking a more lenient view of purification, which led their opponents to charge them with not taking seriously the purification practices they promoted. Furstenberg draws some interesting conclusions from all of this and from other material we've gone over. Quote, all features point in the same direction. The Pharisees promoted a human form of law emanating from the people's ancestral customs, acknowledging their human state and weaknesses, and allowing them as such to participate in ritual activity in the temple and beyond. And he says, and I'm going to quote him at length here because I really can't summarize it better than he does. He says this, they promoted a policy of compromise, even to the degree that it undermined the Levitical system of holiness and purity. The Pharisees endeavored to restrict the excessive status of the priests and the temple, while simultaneously making room for an alternative non-priestly purity by endorsing a less restrictive form of observance oriented toward the human circumstances within an impure environment. It is not surprising then that their legal system came under attack from all directions. Jesus, like other opponents of the Pharisees, believed that choosing a popular policy came at the expense of a tempered ideology. This may have been a price that the Pharisees were willing to pay. Let me try to translate this a bit. What I think he's saying is that the Pharisees seem to be advocating for a more relaxed standard of purity for the common masses of people while making sure that the priestly class would be held to high standards. Of course, they found themselves at the center of a firing circle, given that the priestly class thought they were softies for giving up on strict observances, while others, Jesus included, thought they were sacrificing holiness and purity for popular policy. Do what they say, said Jesus, not what they do. There's much to ponder about his admonition. We've seen now some gospel references that give us some indication of what Pharisees appear to have believed. Jens Schroeder, professor of the Faculty of Theology at Humboldt University in Berlin, finds other indications. He notes that in the Gospel of Mark, the conflicts Jesus had with the Pharisees in Galilee all concerned questions of the law, while all of the conflicts he had with them in Jerusalem concerned questions of politics chiefly taxes. This latter view accords with Josephus's account of the Pharisees being a politically active party. In Galilee, they watched Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. They criticized him and his disciples' disregard of fasting, Sabbath observance, and purity rules. They observe him healing in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and they involve him in a debate about divorce. In these conflicts, Schroeder says, Jesus insists that the law must be interpreted according to God's will, to welcome sinners, to exalt substance over form, to establish the primacy of marriage, whereas the Pharisees are presented as interested in a literal obedience to the law. They insist on the observance of the law, and they oppose Jesus for, for subordinating the law to his own presence and for even overruling certain regulations of the law. The Pharisees didn't like that, of course, and this coincides with Josephus' description that they are most skillful in the exact explication of the laws. Matthew presents the Pharisees as critics of the law, 
concerning fasting, Sabbath observance, and food regulations. They are those from whom the kingdom will be taken away. They sit on Moses' seat. They wear broad phylacteries and long fringes. They observe the rule in tithing strictly, and they venerate the prophets and the righteous. But they are hypocrites because they don't practice what they preach, and they lay heavy burdens on others. They seek recognition from the people, and they forget the weightier matters of the law. This accords with the Essene negative characterization of them too. Some of the authors in the volume think that Matthew's broadsides against the Pharisees stem from his intent to disparage them after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Father Meyer thinks this is plausible too, but he also points to an important historical truth before 70 AD. Quote, Which Jewish group would Jesus most likely collide and debate with if not the Pharisees? After all, according to Josephus, the Pharisees were the Jewish party most active and influential among the common people. He observes, It is hardly a wonder, then, that Jesus would have interacted more with them than with any other Jewish movement or party. While we're talking about negative characterizations in Matthew, let's talk about this especially negative slur. Matthew records both John the Baptist and Jesus calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers. In Matthew chapter 3, John says this when he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him for baptism. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus himself uses the same words. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, this brood of vipers accusation is, shall we say, one hell of a pejorative. Calling someone an offspring of a viper was actually worse than calling one a viper. In antiquity, and even through medieval times, it was thought that newborn vipers ate their way out of their mother's stomachs and killed the mother. What a rich metaphor this was because it insinuated that the Pharisees and Sadducees had eaten their way through their own covenant with God, just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and they were tempters who were trying to take away people from God. Whoa, as we should pause to say. That's a lot worse than being called some two-faced SOB, or even a hypocrite. To say someone was a baby viper was to say, you are a snake who eats your own mother. In point of fact, vipers do not actually eat their way out of their mother. They're born from eggs, but what makes them unusual among snakes is that they're hatched inside and then are birthed. But the metaphor still works, and you wouldn't want to be called one of them. And so, while we're at it, let's now talk about the much ballyhooed woes Jesus throws at the Pharisees. And we should remind ourselves, as Father Meyer does, that these kinds of woes were, as he says, quote, quite typical of the defaming of adversaries' practices in the ancient Mediterranean world. It was especially typical, he says, of the ways various Jewish groups attacked one another around the turn of the era. In other words, readers of the gospel accounts back then would have found nothing out of turn in hearing the woes here. We might, by that same token, say that Jesus said these woes, knowing they were typical of the day, too. 
And I think we can also rejoice with Father Meyer in taking at least one comfort of living in modern times, quote, polite ecumenical dialogue among different religious groups is a happy modern invention. So true. Here's the unvarnished account of the seven woes in full color. The first woe. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Here's the second woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you traverse sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Here's the third woe. And it's the same one we talked about earlier, but in somewhat longer form, so you can now hopefully see what Jesus is talking about when he puts things this way. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. See his point? They are taking something most holy, the temple and the throne of God in heaven, and trading it for something less holy, gold. And don't think these Pharisees are the only ones in history who have made this unholy trade. His curse is just as applicable today, perhaps more so, given the supreme priorities so many have placed on wealth. Here's the fourth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. We don't have any rabbinic references to gnats or camels, but I'm sure we don't need any. His point is clear, and it at least shows that Pharisees were known for tithing on mint and dill and cumin. And Jesus wasn't saying they were wrong in doing so. The fifth woe touches on an issue that was raised in the rabbinic literature over a hundred years later about the cleansing of cups. Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, as we saw earlier, whether you needed to wash both the inside and the outside of a cup raised a legitimate issue under the Mosaic law. Jesus, though, goes way past that, as if he doesn't care one way or the other about the issue. His point is that we have to make ourselves pure on the inside. That's what counts. The sixth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The ossuaries, those chalkstone vessels sold at Zadok's and all other places around Judea. Yes, they were white and pretty on the outside, and they included dead things on the inside. Don't be like them, he says. They got the point. Seventh, and pay attention. We're going to hear about those vipers again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all this will come upon this generation." So we get his point, or we better. And we can't escape the fact that he's hurling these charges directly at the people standing in front of him. Do we really think that the Lord of the universe is not able to make these very personal charges against them? I mean, that's the whole point of all the Gospels, isn't it? That Jesus will come at the end of time and deliver judgment? And that judgment will entail very bad things for some people who deserve those very bad things. Some people will be sheep and we put on the right, and some will be goats and we put on the left. So for those goats who get put on the left and are sentenced to eternal punishment, why wouldn't Jesus, through these harsh warnings, not be giving them, shall we say, a preview of coming attractions? If judgment at the end involves bad things, Why can't judgment before then foretell bad things? So please, let's stop saying there is no way Jesus actually ever said these things. And please don't commit blasphemy like Yale Divinity professors seem want to do by saying that, well, Jesus was only human when he said these things, and he somehow forgot what he said in his Sermon on the Mount. Was Jesus hurling all of these woes at all Pharisees and Sadducees not present there, but elsewhere? Well, why not, at least in general terms? What's wrong with him having made a generalization like that, especially if it were generally true? Who are all these pontifical biblical scholars to say it was not true, that it could not be true? Do they have any evidence of the hearts of these particular men? If so, let's hear it. And for those who say Jesus never even spoke these words, again, what evidence do they have for that? The words are certainly consistent with other words Jesus said. Father Henry Potteromitatil, the Dean of Biblical Faculty at the Pontifical Biblical Institute, makes a stunning observation about something Jesus said elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 12, the Pharisees asked Jesus to show him the sign of who he is. Notably, they don't ask for a sign from heaven, which is probably why they thought Jesus was casting out demons according to the power of Beelzebub and not from heaven. But note how Jesus answers them. He says this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, 
but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now we're all familiar with the connection to Jonah in the three days and nights in the belly of the fish and in the tomb. But pay attention to these other words Jesus uses. Nowhere else in all of scripture will you find these words evil and adulterous used to describe the children of Israel, except in one place, in the book of Hosea, chapter 3. And in that passage, the prophet is describing them in exactly these terms. Jesus is calling the Pharisees evil and adulterous because they are evil and they are whoring around with false gods. That's strong language. Jesus is dropping the near equivalent of an F-bomb on them. I'm sure if you were a Pharisee and you heard all these words, you'd most definitely want to kill them. I mean, I would, naturally speaking, that is. Wouldn't you? And the chief priests and leaders did kill him through the agency of Pontius Pilate. Don't you think, then, it's more plausible than not that Jesus actually said these words to them to give them a motive to kill him? Look, if I were a district attorney and I were prosecuting certain leading Pharisees for having killed Jesus, I most emphatically would be using these words of his to be powerful evidence of their motive to kill him. And let's not forget what other effect these words may have had on others. Others like Nicodemus. Perhaps, quite plausibly perhaps, there were some Pharisees who took Jesus' words under consideration. And in a quiet moment, maybe even in a quiet moment of reflection at night, and they decided Jesus was right. Yes, that Jesus was right. As a holy priest friend of mine used to say, sometimes you have to yell at people in order for them to hear you. Jesus was yelling, if not literally, at least figuratively. And maybe it took that yelling for some of them to actually hear him. Which is to say that, finally, they reflected on what they had heard. Is it too hard to imagine that some may have had this introspective? Damn it. Maybe he's right. Maybe I do shut out the kingdom of heaven against men. Maybe I really don't want others to go in. I guess it's true. All of those proselytes I've made are twice as much a child as hell as I am. I have been swearing by the gold of the temple lately. I really shouldn't be swearing at all. True, I do tithe on mint and dill and cumin. But am I neglecting the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faith? Well, I certainly don't have much to defend myself against that. And yeah, what a stupid technical distinction I've been making about cleansing cups. Look, I buy the argument. But really, who am I kidding? And me? A whitewashed tomb? Yeah, I feel that way. I'm sick inside. I am a snake. I belong to a club of snakes. We would eat out our own mothers. I am angry. I am filled with rage. I rage against people all around me. I've been raging against this Yeshua fellow and all his stupid, ignorant followers. I'm not happy. There must be a better way to live. Maybe this Yeshua has a point. 
and our leaders have certainly killed other prophets throughout our nation's history, only to regret it later. Really regret it. Woe's me. Yes, woe's me. Now, don't you think it's possible, possible, that some Pharisees somewhere heard these horribly personal accusations Jesus was saying about them and repented? Why would modern biblical scholars think that's not possible? Well, we do have one very prominent Pharisee who may not have heard these words directly, but he certainly heard them indirectly. Others certainly told him these words. And yes, the words filled him with murderous rage. He didn't get a chance to kill Jesus, but he got the chance to oversee the killing of one of Jesus' followers. And he let his people pile their cloaks at his feet when they went to stone him to death. And yes, the follower was Stephen. And the handy coat checker was, of course, Saul, the Pharisee. But we don't get a lot of help from this Pharisee, Saul, who was later named Paul, about what he believed as a Pharisee. The only thing we have from him on the subject is this one small sentence. Paul says that he was, quote, with respect to the law, a Pharisee, and with respect to righteousness in the law, blameless. That's in Philippians chapter 3. What does that mean, blameless? Scholars aren't sure, although they don't read Paul to be saying that he was believing anything evil or adulterous or otherwise objectionable under the Mosaic law or the oral traditions arising from it. He was a good party member who believed all the right things, taught all the right things blamelessly. That doesn't tell us what things he believed in, though, and so we're not much farther ahead in knowing what Pharisees actually taught and thought. Wouldn't it be great to know whether Paul had ever met Nicodemus, whether it was Saul or Paul? Saul, the firebrand, blameless Pharisee, Nicodemus, the Pharisee traitor? Most likely, Saul would have had nothing to do with him, even if he had known of him, until later. Did he, as Paul, ever meet Nicodemus later, after his return from Damascus? Did he look Nicodemus up and say, Hey, is that true? Did you really meet Jesus at night? Did you really arrange for his burial? Do you now think he's the Messiah, like I do? Oh, to have been a fly on that wall, to hear what they may have talked about long into the night. But we'll never know. So in the end, from all of this, we get a few insights about what may have been rumbling around in Nicodemus's mind. Issues about cups and gold and divorce and fasting and Sabbath and tithing and damages for poked out eyes. He had a sharp lawyer's mind about these things. On the one hand, he revered tradition. On the other hand, he wasn't crazy. He was reasonable. He was lenient. And for that leniency, his opponents said he was a seeker after smooth things. Did he take that as an insult or as a compliment? Maybe he reveled in that accusation. I might have taken it as a compliment. What's wrong with seeking after smooth things? if that's a reasonable thing to do. God's a reasonable God, right? Did Nicodemus walk about in deceit and falsehood like the Essenes said he did? Oh, poppycock. 
I could care less what those fanatics thought. Those silliest scenes walked about in deceit and falsehood, too. Even more so than any of us Pharisees ever did. It's a good thing they ran off to live in those stupid caves and isolate themselves to death. Cavemen is what they are. I hope they stay there. And I don't care if they're stashing away scraps of paper with their stupid ideas on them. Even if someone finds them 2,000 years from now, it's not as if they're going to change the world or anything. Are we now able to understand Nicodemus a little better through all of the above-mentioned points and authorities? Do we have a sketch of him? Sketch is a good word because if we were artists, we would paint him. And that, in fact, is what one religious art professor can tell us about. The last person from the Pharisees book I'll mention. Angela Ladelfa is an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland Global Campus. and her paper, the Pharisees in art. She says Nicodemus is the most frequent Pharisee depicted in figurative art. And not surprisingly, it's because of his special encounter with Jesus. She also tells us the great sculptor Michelangelo was particularly drawn to Nicodemus, and that Michelangelo's biographers have confirmed that his sculpture of Nicodemus taking Jesus down from the cross in Florence is the self-portrait of Michelangelo himself. Michelangelo saw himself as Nicodemus. Imagine that. She also relates that the great Baroque artist Caravaggio also had special interest in Nicodemus. In his famous painting of the Entombment of Christ, he puts Nicodemus as the lead figure in the foreground, holding the legs of the sagging horizontal Jesus. And of all the people depicted in the painting, the only one staring back at the viewer is Nicodemus. You should look at that painting, Caravaggio's Entombment of Christ. It's terribly poignant. He's hunched over, his arms around Jesus' dead legs, and his head is turned. And he's looking more at us, not apparently wanting to look at Jesus, awkwardly, clearly pausing in the critical task at hand, while the others around him are focused on that grave task at hand. His face has this blank look on it. It's not a face of grief or angst. It's a face of puzzlement. And he seems to be asking you for an answer. What am I doing here? How did I get into this? He wants you to answer his question. Please, how did I get into this? Tell me. You get the sense that the painting is not really about the entombment. It's about Nicodemus. It sort of gives me the chills. How does anyone get into Jesus? I don't know how to answer that. The ways are too many, too rich, too sublime, too complicated, too, well, everything. And that's why I like contemplating Nicodemus. He is, well, too everything. He's too rich. He's too much a ruler. Too political. And he likes the praise of people too much. Or at least one time he did. He was too skillful in the exact explication of the laws. His phylacteries and fringes were too broad. He liked seats of honor too much. He fasted too much. Tithed on mint and cumin too much. Bathed too much exalted the Sabbath too much. He's too much a Pharisee. 
He seems to be like St. Paul, a blameless Pharisee. He feared his colleagues too much. He was too much at risk at being thrown out of the synagogue. And yet here he is at Jesus' burial, if not also at his crucifixion. And he's burying Jesus with too much spice and too much in public for all to see. And why? Because he loved Jesus too much. And let's not forget Nicodemus's very probable role at Jesus's trial that had gone all along that night before. As we mentioned in our series on the trial of Jesus, we have several strong clues that indicate that someone or others were there present at the trial before the Sanhedrin and were likely acting as Jesus's defense counsel that night. We know at least two things from the very meager gospel accounts. Number one, many witnesses were brought forth to testify against Jesus and they couldn't agree. And number two, the trial lasted all night. Why couldn't the witnesses agree? Why did the trial last all night? If only because someone like Nicodemus and Arimathea were there objecting to evidence pointing out inconsistencies of the witness, exonerating Jesus and forcing Joseph Caiaphas in a moment of exasperation to confront Jesus directly in open court and get a loose admission that could allow him to exclaim at dawn after a dismal failure of proof and exclaim, what need we have we of further witnesses? Yes, Nicodemus, likely Arimathea too, had a defense acquittal stolen out from under them. Nicodemus defended Jesus on procedural grounds at the Feast of Sukkot. Why wouldn't he have defended Jesus again here at Passover on both procedural and substantive grounds? And because he was not afraid to infuriate his colleagues over an arrest at that particular Feast of Booths, why would he not also be afraid to infuriate them again at a capital murder trial? And one more point about whether Nicodemus was at Calvary or not. Can't we fairly imagine this? What criminal defense lawyer who loses his case does not accompany his client to the electric chair, the gallows, or whatever place of execution it is? Are we really to think that Nicodemus, on hearing the judgment against his client as day was breaking, simply went home and had breakfast? And let's go back to that mystical and very personal prophecy Jesus gave directly to him, that he would see Jesus lifted up. A prophecy that yet again cuts against those who speculate Nicodemus was not actually at the scene of the crucifixion. Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up, literally, physically. Jesus was the bronze serpent upon whom the Israelites looked upon and were cured of their otherwise lethal snake bite. Remember that figure well. All who looked upon the servant were saved. Well, all who looked upon that bronze serpent with faith were saved. The chief priests looked at Jesus, lifted up, but they do not appear to have been saved. But why not Nicodemus? Why wouldn't he be saved after seeing Jesus lifted up at that particular time and place? He, being one of the very few people in all of human history, was privileged and tormented to witness. If he looked on Jesus with love, why would we not think he also looked on Jesus with faith? I think Father Brown is right. 
John specifically places Nicodemus at the burial of Jesus as a signal to other fearful believers that you too can be like Nicodemus. Historians like to say Nicodemus is an ambiguous character because we don't see evidence of final commitment. And that's true. We don't see that evidence directly. But we most certainly see the direction in which Nicodemus is headed, and we have no evidence he ever turned from that direction. The Catholic Church is always the most optimistic, always the most hopeful, always the most eager to see souls in heaven. It reflects that hope for Nicodemus, too, and has placed him on its official martyrology, that is, its list of recognized saints. It places him with Joseph of Arimathea, too, and they both share the same designated feast day, August 31st. Given what we know about him, why not? Nicodemus, Saint Nicodemus, pray for us. Well, gato Nicodemus, gato Nicodemus, God say yes he did. He told Nicodemus, man, he must be born again. Well, gato Nicodemus, gato Nicodemus, God say yes he did. He told Nicodemus, man, he must be born again. Well, there was a man of the Pharisees by the name of Nicodemus who did not believe. Same Nicodemus came to God by night, talking about religion from the human side. He brought along his silver diamonds and gold to buy his way to him and save his soul but God told Nicodemus God told Nicodemus God said yes he did he told Nicodemus man he must be born again well God told Nicodemus God told Nicodemus God said yes he did he told Nicodemus man he must be born again well the same Nicodemus